he describes the experience of this uh, man, Rob, afterwards, how he never really got involved in the church, never really uh, pursued growth in Christ, and eventually uh, fell away. So you know what Dever is addressing here. He's addressing this, this problem. Uh, he's addressing the idea that once people are saved, they are always saved. Is there truth to that? Of course, we believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. So if someone is truly saved, they cannot lose their salvation. We confess that as true. But here is what we do not mean by that. If you would simply pray a prayer, you are saved and this, uh, thus always saved, no matter what you do after that. Um, and, and really the, the, the idea here is that there, there are people who make false professions of faith. There are people who make false professions of faith. Uh, the scriptures speak about this. John talks about those who went out from us, showing that they were never of us. So for a time, they appeared to be of us. But when they went out from us, they showed plainly that they, they were not. That's my paraphrase of John. Um, and so this is, this is a reality that we have to be aware of. What will those who are truly saved do? What will they produce in their life except uh, fruits in keeping with repentance? They're, they're going to live a life that is devoted to the Lord, a life of faith, a life of repentance, a life of increasing holiness. They're, they're going to grow in Christ uh, from that day forward. And so, yes, we do believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, whichever way you would like to put it. But we do not believe that just because someone prayed a prayer when they were 12 years old or 22 or at whatever age, that means they are automatically saved no matter how they live afterwards. So Dever rejects that and he encourages us to develop a biblical theology of growth. He makes a case from the Old Testament that God is obviously concerned for growth and he does it in an interesting way. He, he just notes that in the beginning after God created the man and the woman, he commanded that they be fruitful and multiply, that they increase in number. He points out that when uh, God promised things to Abraham. He promised him that his descendants would be great and that they would increase. Dever says here, God does not subscribe to the idea that small is beautiful. And, and here is the thing I'm saying we need to be a little bit uh, uh, careful of in, in, in the Reformed tradition. We do love our small church. We love the intimacy that we have with one another. We like the fact that pastors are able to be pastors. We reject the idea that bigger is always better. Um, but this should not cause us to be unconcerned to see our churches uh, grow. In Psalm 92, 12 through 13, the psalmist says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. And so I think Dever's point is, is important. God is concerned with growth throughout the scriptures, and we should be concerned with growth too. He also makes an argument briefly from the New Testament on pages 178 and following. Jesus himself speaks of how his kingdom will grow. It will start out small, like the smallest of seeds, and grow into a very large plant, become like a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches, Matthew 13, 32. 
Uh, also, the book of Acts describes how the church was constantly increasing. In those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, Acts 6.1 says, but the word of God continued to increase and spread, says Acts 12.24. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, Acts 13.49, and, and so on. Um, the endeavor does make some qualifications. If your church is more crowded with people now than it was a few years ago, does that mean that it is a healthy church? He says, not necessarily, um, but certainly this idea of growth is found throughout the Old and New Testaments, and we ought to pray for it, and we ought to desire to see it. So how does growth happen? That's a very important question. If we are to be concerned uh, to see the church grow, yes, in number, but especially in spiritual depth and maturity, we need to know how growth happens and first of all, Dever emphasizes that it is God that causes growth. We cannot produce uh, numerical growth in our churches. We cannot produce in our own strength uh, true conversions. And neither can we cause spiritual growth in one another. We are to do certain things. Yes, we have responsibilities as pastors, as deacons, as members. God has called us to do certain things. But it is God who causes the growth. And here I have in your outline uh, printed out Colossians 2, 18 through 19, where Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions pushed, puffed up without reason by uh, his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so I think two things are to be noted here. And it is that growth in the body comes from uh, the head, namely Christ. Um, there's an analogy of, of, of a body being used here. Uh, but Paul says that we are to hold fast to the head, namely Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows. And then it is stated in another way at the end of Colossians to. 19, uh, it grows with a growth that is from God. Uh, this might sound very obvious to you because you've heard it, but I, I, I do want you to think of how, how important this principle is. Should we desire to see our churches grow in number and in maturity? Yes, but the first principle we must understand is that it is God who causes the growth. Therefore, we must rely wholly upon Him, and therefore we must be about the things that he has called us to be about, uh, to disregard him, to try to cause the church to grow through him, human effort alone is going to produce something other than uh, true uh, spiritual growth. Uh, the converts that we bring into the church may not be true converts, and uh, they will not grow in spiritual maturity as, as God has desired if our efforts are merely human we need to depend upon God's strength. We need to depend upon God's power. We need to also employ God's methods and means and not our own. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13 also speaks to this. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus 
with all his saints. The thing to notice in this text is uh, Paul's prayer uh, that it would be the Lord who makes his people increase and abound in love for one another, etc. This is the work of the Lord. Nevertheless, the scriptures do call us to pursue growth. And these these are not contradictory things. You, you understand this. I hope you understand this. It's such an important part of, of biblical theology, of Reformed theology, that God's sovereignty over these matters and our responsibility in these matters are not contradictions. They do go together hand in hand. God causes the growth, and yet the Scriptures also command us to grow. <laughs> the Scriptures command us to pursue growth. So to deny one or the other... It's going to be unbiblical through and through. Um, God works in the hearts of His people to enable them to pursue growth. God works through means. And so, yes, He is sovereign over all of these things, and yet we have, we have a role to play in our growth. By the grace of God, we have a role to play in our Christian growth. Consider these texts. I have three of them. A couple of them are a little bit longer. 2 Peter 3.18, here is a command, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. It is a command, it's in the imperative. Um, in other texts we're told that it is God who causes the growth, but here in, in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 3.18, uh, Peter commands Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see it? And so we cannot ignore the one or the other. We cannot ignore the texts that emphasize that it is God's work, and neither can we ignore the texts that emphasize that we have uh, work to do. And no, I'm not slipping into um, synergism. Uh, Tom and Jody heard the word synergism quite a bit <laughs> this past weekend. You know, it came up in conversation a lot. Do you, do you all know what synergism is, theologically speaking, what that word means? Anyone? Have you heard it? I haven't used it much as a pastor but you'll hear it in, in Reformed circles from time to time. Synergism is something we want to avoid. It's a bad word. Does anyone know what it means theologically, Scott? It means that we participate or we cooperate or assist in some way uh, in God's work, which, which is so bad in the, in the sense of justification, but not necessarily in the sense of sanction. But yeah, that's well said. Um, synergism uh, speaks of, of cooperation between God and man. Synergists will teach that, well, if we are to be saved, if we are to be justified, we must cooperate with God. God is going to do His part. He'll do the 50% or maybe the 51%, but we must do ours, the 50 or 49, right? And in order for us to be saved, justified, there has to be this cooperation that takes place. God is a gentleman. He will never force himself on anyone. You know, they, they say, uh, so God is going to call you, but you must respond. And he will not force you to respond, you know. And that's the kind of synergism we want to avoid. Um, is it true that we must respond in faith? Yes, <laughs> that is true. But it is God who gives us the gift of faith. It is God who woos us or calls us or conquers us, we might even say. I think it is right to use very strong language. He conquers us uh, so that we bow the knee and call Him Lord. 
Uh, he subdues us. This is the first work he does as our great king. He's our prophet, priest, and king. And what does he do as our king? He subdues us so that we, we call out to him as Lord. So we are not synergists as it pertains to the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of justification. There is no cooperation here. It is God who opens our blind eyes. It is God who unstops our deaf ears. It is God who gives life to, to us though we were dead. That, that's, there's no cooperation. That's God's work. Do we respond in faith? Yes, because He has made us alive. Because He has opened our eyes and unstopped our ears. He has graciously enabled us to believe. But it is the work of God. But does that mean there is no, nothing for us to do? I've already said that we must believe, so the Scriptures compel us to believe. And what about as it pertains to our ongoing growth in Christ, our sanctification? Is there nothing for us to do? Well, how do you make sense of 2 Peter 3.18, where we are commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? There is something for us to do. You must grow. You must pursue growth in Christ. Now, you must be very careful to not do it in your own strength. You must be very careful to not do it thinking that it is your work only. No, it is the work of God in you. But nevertheless, you are called to do things. And so, this idea that we are wholly passive in the whole of the Christian life is nonsense. And if you've been told that by Reformed type folks, then you've been misled. That, that's not classic Reformed orthodoxy. That's a distortion of it. That, that's creeping into maybe what we would call hyper-Calvinism. Have you ever heard that term? You know, uh, We are Calvinists. We are not hyper-Calvinists, though. We, we have not gone off the rails to the extreme in the opposite direction. We believe that God works through means and that we have responsibilities. So um, that needs to be emphasized. Does that all make sense to you? Um, pursue Christ. Grow in Him. Mature in Him. Put to death the, these sinful deeds. Put on Christ day after day. You need to do it, not in your own strength, but with the strength that God provides, ever relying upon His mercy and grace. Okay, That's very important. We need to read these other texts here also. 2 Peter 1, 5-8, through 8. here is Peter again, same book. For this very reason, make every effort, that's what he's telling you, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Isn't this great? So you come to faith, this is by the grace of God alone, it is not your own doing. It is not a result of works so that someone may boast. So you come to faith in Christ. And Peter is saying, that is wonderful. You have faith and you're, you're an infant in the faith as it were. Now supplement your faith with all of these things. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, faithfulness, uh, godliness, brotherly affection, love. For, I continue quoting now, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Again, make every effort, Peter commands. Uh, maybe at this point I'll pause just for a moment and make reference to our confession of faith, where our, where our beliefs are most clearly articulated in, in writing. I love our confession of faith in, in its section on, on the doctrine of salvation. It first presents to us things that God alone does in salvation. Uh, things like justification. Things like adoption. Um, and you've heard me say this before. 
the language of the confession is very precise and very helpful. It presents these things as things that God alone does. Who justifies you? God alone. Do you justify yourself in any sense? Not at all. Who has adopted you if you have faith in Christ Jesus? God alone. Did you contribute anything at all to your adoption? No, not at all. And then our confession does begin to speak about other aspects of salvation that we have some participation in, as it were. Um, Who sanctifies you? You see, it's a little more complex, isn't it? You can answer that in two ways. Ultimately, it is God who sanctifies us. We know that. But are we to take part in our sanctification? Yes. That's what's being taught in these passages that I'm reading. Uh, who, who believes? Who believes to the salvation of, uh, uh, of their souls? Um, is it God who believes for you or is it you who believe? It's you who believe. Who does good works? Is it God who does good works for you or is it you? It is, it is you who do the good works. God has called you to do good works. Um, who perseveres? Is it God who perseveres for you? No, it is you who are to persevere in the faith. And so our confession presents these aspects of our salvation in that order. First, it emphasizes those things that God alone does, things like justification and adoption. And then it emphasizes those things that we do. Um, There's a sense in which we are being sanctified and we have a part to play in it. And then we are the ones who believe, do good works, etc. But the language is so beautiful and that even in those portion even in those things that we have a part in the language is this by god's grace that is the language it is god who enables us to believe to have faith it is god enables us who enables us to do good works it is god who enables us graciously to persevere in christ to the end so i mention it to you just to say that our confession of faith is very helpful in the way that it talks about all of these things. Let's go now to John 15, a very beautiful and famous passage. Uh, This is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, He says. Maybe I should pause there and to emphasize that notice that this is the work that the Father does. He takes away those branches that bear no fruit. Perhaps this has a reference to false professors, uh, false believers, those who've made a false profession of faith. But he goes on to say every, um, he goes on to say that uh, every branch that does bear fruit, he, the father, prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then he says to his disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now listen to the words of Christ. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Maybe just a couple of remarks about this passage. First of all, notice that there is work that the Father does, and that is dealt with first. I've already spoken to that. Notice that there is work for us to do. We are called to produce fruit. We are called to bear fruit. But how are we to do it? By abiding in Christ, by remaining in Christ, by relying upon Christ, knowing that it is He who will produce this fruit in and through us. We must abide in Him. But there is another thing that I would like to emphasize here, that this abiding is not purely mystical, as if it is all about um, prayer. It is about prayer. As if it is all about ingesting the Word of God. It is about ingesting the Word of God. But Christ says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there is something about obedience here. How do we abide in Christ? Yes, by relying upon Him through prayer, by taking His Word into our hearts and meditating upon it. That is all true. But He says, if you abide in my commandments, you will abide in... If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so to be near to Christ and to abide in Him involves obeying Him. It, it involves obeying Him. So if you walk out these doors and begin to live a life of sin, you are not abiding in Christ. You are not abiding in Christ. But to, to rely on Him in prayer, to know His Word, to treasure it in, his, in, in your heart, and to, and to strive to keep it. And when you do sin, to turn from it into Christ again. This is what a life of abiding in Christ looks like. I think it's a very wonderful passage about all of these things. We need to pursue growth, but we cannot do it in our own strength. We must abide in the Lord. We must trust in Him and draw near to Him and walk with Him, knowing that He will produce good fruit in and through us over time. Okay, a biblical practice of growth. <clears throat> this all ties together. If it is God who causes the growth, and if we are called to pursue growth, uh, then we must pursue it in the way that God has commanded and not through other means. We must pursue growth in the way that God has commanded and not through other means. And here we have kind of an overview of the entire book, I think, uh, condensed down into this little section, a biblical practice of growth. How should we pursue growth in Christ? Endeavor mentions expositional preaching, gospel doctrine, a biblical understanding of church membership, a biblical understanding of church discipline, of church leadership, a biblical understanding of practice and practice of prayer, and a biblical understanding of missions. As you read that there, do you not think, is that not the outline of this entire book nearly? <laughs> not, not quite. Um, but what is he doing? He's saying if we want to grow truly, if we want to grow, grow truly, numerically and in a spiritual sense, we cannot ignore what the Word of God has called us to do as a church and as Christians and run off to other things, to other methods, to other schemes. We must simply do what God has called us to do. You know, in the Reformed tradition, here is how this would be said. If we hope to grow in Christ, we must devote ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. I think that is the idea here. I am not saying that all of these things here are the ordinary means of grace, but this is probably how it would be said in the Reformed tradition. If we wish to grow in Christ, we must devote ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. Does any, anyone know what the ordinary means of grace are traditionally, what, what, what we would identify as being the ordinary means? Anyone? Prayer. prayer. Okay, so he does mention prayer, doesn't he? A biblical understanding and practice of prayer. What else? Okay, 
baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the sacraments or ordinances of the church, uh, the Word of God preached and read, right? These are the ordinary means of grace. We might also mention Christian fellowship also um, as being important, uh, but I think it's implied in the other things. If the ordinary means of grace are the Word of God preached and read, baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer, we need to realize there's a corporate element to, to some of these things, uh, to the preached Word and to the sacraments. So we must come together in the church to partake of the Word preached and read publicly, the Lord's Supper week after week, baptism at the beginning of the Christian life. You could see these themes in what Dever presents, expositional preaching, gospel doctrine, and by this he means we need to grow in our understanding of the truth of God's Word. Uh, church membership, so the corporate is here emphasized. Church discipline, again the corporate emphasized in the sense of there being real relationships and accountability within the church. Church leadership, pastors being pastors and not CEOs. Um, and then he mentions prayer as well. You know, I did tell you that Dever is a, is a Southern Baptist. I, I don't mean any disrespect by this. In some regards, we're looking back on this study from all these years ago and seeing how we've sort of grown beyond some of these things. And I, and I, I do appreciate the Reformed tradition on this a little bit more, to emphasize the ordinary means of grace, um, to put it in that sense. What is meant by the phrase, the ordinary means of grace? Anyone? What is meant by ordinary? Ordained. ordained, okay. Yes, ordained, maybe another sense too. Common. Is it possible that God uses other things to grow you as a Christian besides these things we've just mentioned? Yes. Is it possible that the Lord uses a retreat to grow you? A retreat, a spiritual retreat. Yes, that is possible. The Lord really worked through a, a spiritual retreat, or maybe we should say a conference. You attend a conference. Is it possible that the Lord uses that to, to minister to you and to grow you? Yes. Is it possible that the Lord uses um, uh, special circumstances in your life to grow you up, to mature you? He does that all the time. Yes. But I think the question is, should we focus on those things and make them primary? No. What should we focus on? What should be primary to us day after day and week after week? It should be the ordinary means of grace. If God's purpose is to use other things to grow you up spiritually, then so be it. He can do whatever He wishes. And, and we should thank God for those things, these experiences in life that are unusual or uh, a special conference or retreat or, or whatever the situation may be. We can thank God for the way in which He uses these things to grow us up. But what should we focus on as Christians? We should focus on and be devoted to the ordinary means of grace. We need to be faithful to do what God has commanded us to do. To assemble each Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath, to hear the Word of God read and preached, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to sing to God, to have fellowship with one another, to be the church that God has called us to be, where there are pastors and deacons who are 
leading and members who are using the gifts that God has, has given to them, where church discipline is practiced according to the scriptures, we believe that through these ordinary and common things, God is going to cause growth in the lives of his people, and he's going to grow the church numerically according to his will if we would only be devoted to them. I get a little worked up about this to be, to, to, maybe you could hear it in me, but I, 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 I'm afraid that in so many churches, the ordinary things are disregarded and instead extraordinary things are put into the primary place. Have you ever seen this? I mean, you, you'll hear in the Reformed tradition um, pastors and, and churches being critical of um, program-driven ministries. Program-driven ministries. Um, it's all about the programs. We're going to bring in the crowds by doing this, this, and that extra thing. Programs, right? And I, I think we need to be a little bit careful here. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> doing things outside of what God has commanded on the Lord's Day morning. Don't get me wrong. The, the trouble is when the ordinary things are disregarded and extraordinary things are put in their place and are relied upon to bring growth in people. Does that make sense? Have I misspoken there? I hope I haven't misspoken. Um, yes, I think it's a real problem here. And so uh, we need to devote ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. What is meant by means? In that phrase, ordinary means of grace. What is meant by means? Ways. Ordinary ways, yes. The things that God uses. Process. Um, conduits. Conduits of grace. Ordinary conduits of grace. I don't know, that comes to my mind. Could God simply zap us from on high and make us grow? in like a, a, a direct way, without the use of means. Uh, yes. But in the scriptures we see that God has determined to use means to grow us. And we've already mentioned them. Um, he uses the word of God read and preached. He uses prayer. He uses the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He uses church life to grow his people as we sharpen one another as we commune together, as we encourage one another. He uses other people, in other words, to grow us. So God works through means. He could do otherwise, but this is how He has determined to bring growth and maturity to His people. And then ordinary means of grace. Um, we are not, obviously, Roman Catholics that will talk about means of grace, but in a different way, as if the church has the ability to distribute God's grace in an automatic sort of sense. Uh, you understand the difference here. According to the Roman Catholic tradition, the church administers the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and those who partake of the Lord's Supper, they get a serving of God's grace, as it were, in a rather automatic sense, irrespective of what is going on in the hearts and minds of the people who are partaking. When we talk about the means of grace, we mean something else. We mean that God graciously uh, saves His people and sanctifies His people through these conduits, yes, but what is going on in the minds and the hearts of the people who are partaking, let's say, of the Lord's Supper matters greatly. These means of grace do not function in an automatic sense, um, but God does use them nevertheless. That's my attempt at a very brief and simple explanation of these things. 
So the church is not distributing God's grace in that automatic sense, but the church is to be faithful to to preach and to pray and to be the church that God has called it to be, trusting that the Lord, according to His will and according to His purposes, will use these things to work in the lives of His elect. And so we must be faithful. Okay, that was kind of just a tangent that I decided to go on um, here. Uh, but, but I think it, it should clarify what is meant by all of this using kind of our own terminology. How is God going to grow us as we devote ourselves to the ordinary means of grace, Dever says we are to be devoted to expositional preaching. Gospel doctrine, I wanted to elaborate on this just a little bit. The truth is this, we grow as we understand more and more truth about God and us. Um, I included Romans 12, 1 through 2, which I think is such an important text. Paul there says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, By the way, notice here we have another command to do something. The Christian is commanded to present themselves to God as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So again, commands. But then we find the word by. How will we be transformed and how will we not be conformed to the world? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Is it true that if we are to be truly changed, God must change our heart? Yes, that is true. Must He change our will? Must He renew us as whole persons? That is all true, but Paul is pointing out that the mind is also involved in this process, and it might even be the mind that is impacted first. We come to be changed, sanctified. We come to grow in Christ, through the renewal of our minds, uh, we begin to think differently about God. We begin to think differently about ourselves. We begin to think differently about the world around us. And so this is the process that God uses to change His people. The mind must be changed, so to the affection, so to the will. But it might be the mind that is the first thing that is impacted as the Word of God is preached and as we take it in and begin to meditate upon it, you see. So Romans 12, 1 through 2 is very important. A biblical understanding of church membership, discipline, leadership, the practice of prayer, and also of missions. Um, I do believe that Dever will return to this idea of missions later in the book, right? Uh, And so I won't spend much time on it here. But we must be very careful when it comes to missions, that is to say local evangelism and evangelism to the farthest reaches of the earth when it comes to church planting, to again, not employ human methods, according to our wisdom, but to be faithful to do what God has called us to do. Missions is the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Missions is the planting of churches to the ends of the earth. May God use the building of hospitals for good to the ends of the earth, or the establishment of schools to the ends of the earth. May He use these things for good. I do not doubt it. But missions, properly speaking, is about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you wish to know... Read the book of Acts, and then read it again, and then read it again. What did Paul do? He did not go and build schools. He did not go and build hospitals. He went and preached Christ crucified and risen. You understand the problem I'm getting at here, don't you? I think so much of what is now called missions is something other than missions. Good work, these things I think should be placed under the category of good deeds. 
of, and they are good deeds. I'm not saying we ought not to do these things as Christians. But I think what we call them is very important. Uh, these, are, th- these are mercy ministries. These are good deeds. But we ought not to call these things missions or evangelism. Because evangelism, properly speaking, is the proclamation of the gospel. Something to think about. We don't have time to dwell on it now. Hopes for growth. Here I think Dever turns his attention to his own church. I think these were sermons originally de- delivered by Dever in his own church. And he talks about wanting to regain the practice of pastoral visitation on page 190. He was noting to his congregation that this used to be the practice long ago, that pastors would visit their people, and that practice has been lost. And so he mentions wanting to regain it. And and I've told you my intention is to meet with the families of Emmaus at least once per year. We can meet a lot more. But to have this time of visitation, and, and I do intend to follow through on that, Uh, to meet with the families or members of Emmaus at least once per year, uh, to sit down and not just chit-chat, we will chit-chat, but to to kind of, you know, have a meaningful conversation. How are things with you? How is your walk with Christ? How are things with your family? Um, How are things with you in the church, etc.? Some time ago I sent out a whole list of questions that I'd like to address, and, and I do want to clarify to you all, I do not intend to have that list printed out and to go through them. But just for you to know that these are things that I would like to address, and, and let's talk, because pastors need to know their people. And I do feel like I know you all very well, but I think to have this formal approach, where at least once a year we sit down together to talk about these things, is, is going to be healthy for the church. I feel like I know you very well. We talk all the time, um, but I have noticed that if you're not disciplined to do certain things, months and years pass by without certain conversations being had. I'm, I'm boggled at how fast time seems to be moving by. I, I had this experience um, not long ago. I, I, I made reference to something having happened three months ago, let's say, and really it was like 18 months ago or something like that. Time flies by, and so we need to be very deliberate in our interactions, especially pastors with the members of the church. And here on page 91, I believe that Dever does talk about hopes uh, for growth together as a church. I'm trying to remember what it is that he says here. So let me very quickly turn there so I can jog my memory. Oh yes, it's here uh, that he um, prints out uh, their church covenant. And yes, our church covenant is printed out uh, on, on the, on the uh, back of this page. So his message was this. He wants to see Capitol Hill Baptist Church grow even more so in their commitment um, as articulated in their church covenant. I love our church covenant as well. It's very similar to theirs. I think it's quite traditional in Baptist churches. So growth is important. A healthy church has a pervasive concern with church growth, not simply growing numbers, but growing members. Uh, What if we don't grow? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? That is Matthew 7.16. We must grow, brothers and sisters. We must pursue Christ with the grace that He supplies. And then here is our church covenant. It is very beautiful. There are a lot of commitments made here. When members join this church, we will do all sorts of things. For example, work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of uh, peace. Uh, etc. But I wanted to draw your attention to the underlined portion because it has to do with spiritual growth. 
we will seek by divine aid, so with God's help, to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us as Christians a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. So there it is at the heart of our um, covenant. Uh, we, we commit to pursue holiness uh, with the strength that the Lord provides by divine aid, we say. So this is wonderful. Do you have any uh, feedback, uh, any questions or comments with the very limited time we have uh, remaining? Man, I went on that tangent about the ordinary means of grace, and it, it gobbled up time, but I think it was important. Scott? It's a great question. Um, so how to grow a church? I think we have to grow the church through the preaching of the gospel. Um, we, part of the reason I picked up the study again is because I think we needed to continue to grow in our understanding of biblical church discipline. Secondly, I think we need to grow in evangelism, <laughs> brothers and sisters. We do. We need to proclaim the gospel faithfully in this community and be concerned to see it proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And so we need to think about how to do that effectively. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. It might even just be... Um, I, I have some ideas about how to motivate that and how to stimulate that more, and Lord willing, we'll get to that in the future. But uh, we need to be faithful to preach the gospel. Also, we need to be faithful to offer things to brand new believers. You'll notice that we started an introduction to the Christian faith class this last Thursday, and I've just grown in my conviction that it's so important to offer something like that regularly because as people come to Christ, they're going to need to be discipled in the most fundamental things um, a lot of the people who are coming to that class as of last Thursday uh, have quite a bit of Christian experience, in fact, and they're not brand new believers, and it's good for them too. But I think the church needs to be ready to take brand new believers and to disciple them, to catechize them effectively from the beginning, preparing them for baptism, preparing them for membership. As to the question of how large should a church grow, I don't know that there's an exact answer, but I think there is a limit. Um, I used this illustration before. There are really large families, and there are really you know, small families, and they're all rightly called families, but there is obviously a limit to the size of a family. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I, I know of families that have 12 children, and it's a family. Father and mother are able to parent those children, and you might know of families who have more than that, maybe, I, I don't know, as many as 15 or, or something like that. But I think everyone would agree that at some point, it, it, it stops becoming a family and it becomes something else. You know, you, you can't imagine a father and mother having a hundred children. You know, you can't imagine that. At some point you go, wait, that doesn't really make sense. It's unnatural. It's unnatural. Um, how could one woman produce that many children and how could two parents possibly care for that many children? Is this a helpful analogy? I think it's the same way with churches. At some point, you begin to wonder, is this a church? If it has 10,000 members, how could the 
pastors of this church, even if there are very many of them, how can they possibly care for a multitude like this? And I don't know what that number is. I know that there are some churches that are relatively large. We might, we might consider them large, 500 members. And they have lots of very capable elders who maybe do a good job at pastoral care and discipline. Okay, it's possible, but I think you would agree with me that when you start to creep into the thousands, it becomes harder and harder to imagine how that church is actually fulfilling what God has called it to do. You know, in, in my mind, I'm thinking a couple hundred, you know, even, even that number, numbers beyond that become difficult um, for there to be real pastoral care taking place within a congregation. I think what you would do is you would need to plant churches. You would need to multiply. Yeah. Uh, you, you would need to multiply. Um, but I'm not dogmatic about the numbers, if that makes sense. It's more about the principles that need to be applied with wisdom. So, Tom. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. We ought to do good works. And our confession says that good works adorn the gospel. So they make the gospel beautiful. So they ought to be used in that sense. But notice the gospel must be preached. The gospel must be preached, and churches must be planted. And if that is not happening, then it's not missions. It's not evangelism. It's something else. It might be something else that's good. But if the gospel is not being preached, and if churches are not being... Gospel churches, biblical churches, if they are not being planted, then something other than missions is taking place. So good works are good works. They're commanded by God. But they are to adorn the gospel... In other words, good works are not the gospel. They're not the same thing. Um, yes, I think we need to keep those distinctions. We're out of time. Uh, we're always out of time. Sorry. Um, we could talk more later. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do bless this Lord's Day as your people gather and as we devote ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. I pray that you would use them powerfully not only to convert sinners, but to grow saints as well. I pray that this church would flourish, that we would grow in every way, and that you would receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen.